The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Lord, we do believe that apart from you, we can do nothing. You told us that. It's true. And I want to say we believe it. And I also want to ask you to help us with our unbelief. Because it is true and we do believe and yet we often, often pursue life apart from you as if we can accomplish enough, well enough, good enough without you. So Lord, forgive me, forgive us for thinking like that and grow us in the understanding that we need you. We need you in our personal lives, we need you in our church life and I ask you to show your hand in our midst. To intervene even right now in the hearts and minds of your people here in this room, sitting and speaking. Take control of us, Lord. Fill us with your Spirit. Move us to follow your decrees. It's the promise of the new covenant, and we live in it now and ask you for it. Would you particularly anoint this time to teach? You teach us. You, Father, Son, and Spirit, draw us to worship as our minds are renewed. This is who you are and this is who we are. You are a God who gives and we are a people who need. And so please give. Give us your spirit. Give us truth. Renew us, give us new lives now, and as the passage is going to point us towards, bring the new life that is coming. Thank you for the surety of that. Now I ask you to make your word clear. Have your way here in this time with us, your people, and make us pleasing to you in every way. We pray this for Christ's glory and in his name. Amen. We give our attention this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going there and looking at a lengthy passage that we began last week, you'll recall if you were here. Verses 12 to 34, if you just look at it, it's a long section, and it all hangs together in a way, and so in a way it needs to be presented together. However, it's much too long of a passage to deal with all in one sermon, so what I did was I addressed part of it last week, the first paragraph, 12 through 19, Addressed that last week and then dipped into the application section at the very end. And then this week I'm going to address the middle section, 20 to 28, again dipping into the application section at the end. So there will be a little bit of overlap here. I hope it's not too redundant. But we're going to give most of our focus to the middle of this section. Last week in verse 12 we saw Paul raising for us the issue. He's addressing the issue of the resurrection of the dead here now at the end of this letter because there were some in Corinth who, for some reason or another, thought and taught that such a thing was not going to happen. The dead would not be raised. And Paul turns and addresses that and refutes it by pointing out that Christ, who himself was fully man, Christ, God the Son, is fully God and he is also fully man. And Jesus was a real live man and he really came back from the dead. Paul points it out and said, if 
if the men are not raised from the dead, then that man would not be raised from the dead. Now, so come on now. Think this through. He was raised. And if he hadn't been, think of the ramifications. And that was the focus of last week's passage. We'd be left in our sins. If Christ had not been raised, the cross would have been of no effect and we'd be left doomed to perish in our sins under the good wrath of God. Odd phrase, good wrath of God. The wrath of God is good because it is against evil. We'd be doomed to perish in our sin. We'd be doomed to live plagued by our sin forever if the resurrection didn't happen. But thank God it did. By the grace of God, that's not the case for a Christian. You are not left in your sins. Which is a marvelous thing. But that's not all. The next paragraph, what we're going to look at today, says there's more. It's not just that we are no longer objects of wrath left in our sins, but also, positively speaking, there is a new life coming. Already come a little bit, but coming in vastness. That's what he turns to in our, in our passage, 20 to 28. There is something new that is coming. A life after this life. So let me read, beginning in verse 20, all the way down through verse 34. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule. And every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. 1 Corinthians 15. Having raised the possibility of all the problems that would come if Christ was not raised from the dead, verse 20 turns to the established fact he was raised. The tomb was empty. It's a, a, a fact of history. 
The tomb was empty. There was no body. As he recounted earlier in the chapter, Jesus, raised from the dead, walked around. Hundreds of people saw him. He was raised. And then 20 to 28 talks about what that means for the life after this life. He's been raised the first fruits, it says there in 20 and in 23. First fruits, we talked about this last week. It's the beginning of a harvest. It's a term just describes the first things to come off the tree at harvest time, the first things to come out of the field at harvest time, off the vine. It says, this is the very beginning, there's a lot more to come. But look, it's happening. Harvest. It's Christ, the first fruits. But there's more to come. And so the fact that we have not yet seen this massive resurrection is no proof that it's not going to happen. Any more than the fact that the harvest is not ripe is no proof that it never will be ripe. It's happening. And it will happen when he comes. Well, just like a man Adam introduced and brought death to all, so too a man Christ has brought life from the dead. And that's the point of 21 and 22. He sets up this this contrast here. One man brings death, one man brings life. Unless we misunderstand and think, and when he says, all die, all shall live, we don't want to misunderstand and think that he's saying all will be saved. 23 clarifies the first fruits and then those who belong to Christ. He's not talking about non-Christians here. He's talking to a church about what will happen to believers. They will all be raised brought to life that's the end verse 24 then comes the end if you think this through there's a there's a logical sequence here a logical order but there's not actually a specified timing here if you ask how long after this is the end as some have asked it doesn't say it just says christ is raised then when he comes the first fruits First fruits and then the rest and then the end. Is it an hour, a thousand years after? doesn't say. There's enough time in there between when Christ comes and the end that he will finish what he's doing. It says that he is about destroying every rule and every authority and every power, which would be demonic powers and authorities, human earthly systems, governments, all. Everything that stands in opposition opposition to the kingdom of Christ, all of it. He is working and will complete the work of subjecting it all, putting it under his feet, a very common image of a victor standing on the neck of his vanquished foe. Everything under his feet. Lastly, death. Whenever that's finished, that's the end. And I know as I say that, it it probably sends at least a few of us kind of running to our mental charts and graphs about how eschatology works out. Let me just ask you to not go there for fear that you'll miss what's being emphasized in this passage. There are passages in the Bible that give details of the end. Probably, not. I think, not as many details as some think, but probably more than others think. That's just not here. He's got a point in this passage, and and don't run off to kind of categorize your eschatology, your end times thinking, and miss the point here. What's the point here? Listen to it. 
Listen to what this, what this uh, emphasis is. Verse uh, 25, alluding to the Messiah in Psalm 110, putting all enemies under his feet. Then 27, quoting from Psalm 8, which is about all the creation being subject to humanity. He applies that to the Messiah and says, all things in subjection under his feet. And then twice more, all things in subjection, except the one who put them in subjection. And 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son will be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection. What's the point? I almost get tongue-tied saying it. It's in there so frequently. What's the point? Subjection. Repeatedly, in the last half of this paragraph, it is again and again and again about this. About grabbing every single thing you can think of and sticking it under, beneath, subjecting it to Christ. And in the very end, to God. God the Father. This is about subjection accomplished. So we'll have to think about that. But if you get this, if you kind of understand this, this should change how you think and how you live, which is the point of 29 to 34. Gives a couple of examples there. And I said a little more about this last week, verse 29, but I need to touch on it again because if you're new here, you probably realize this is a pretty commonly twisted verse in our culture. What's he talking about when he talks about the baptism on behalf of the dead? Well, what is it and what isn't it? That's important. As I said, a little more last week on that, but what it isn't, clearly from the passage, is it is not a command. And it is also clearly not anything that Paul has in mind helping out the dead. And it has nothing to do with helping out anybody in relation to the gospel. It doesn't save. It doesn't help a person get saved. We need to look no further than what Paul calls the gospel to understand that. It is the, the gospel is the message about what God has done to save, not what we do. Our baptism is not a part of it. Baptism is intended to signify something that has happened, but doesn't help it happen. Some about what it isn't, but what is it then? I think what it is, I think that, and grammatically this is, this is permissible, we don't often read it like this, but we, I think, should, people in the church, I think, who asked for and were baptized on account of the dead, because of the dead. As they interacted, perhaps with a loved one, with someone who died and said, I want to see you on the other side, so to speak. They said, there is another side. I know it. I want to be with you there. What must I do to be saved? And Paul's referring back to say, what were you, if you don't think, if you're not telling me there's no resurrection, what were you thinking back then? You know better. When you look at the grave, you know better. You know there's something coming. And you acted on it back then, and now you're telling me otherwise. Come on now, think this through. I think that's what he's saying. Other explanations have been offered. But whatever he actually means, it's clear why he says this. He's using it as an example, pointing out when you think there is a life coming, you act on it now. Just like I did when I suffered in ministry because I believe there's something out there after this life and so I endured all kinds of hardship. If it's just the case that eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, what am I doing? It's not the case. 
There's a life that's coming. Wake up, he says with a little bit of a... Talking to a church, telling them, wake up. Don't be deceived. I say this to your shame is not a kind way to end a paragraph. There's a problem. They aren't thinking clearly on this. So are we thinking clearly on this? I hope. If we do, I pray that... that, Okay, so here's my main point. And I hope and I pray that this point kind of becomes a big deal to you. Here it is. The resurrection tells us that God has another life for us in which He finally will be everything. I'll say that again. The resurrection tells us that God has another life for us in which He finally will be everything. That's the point of this section, and I'm going to break it into three different observations this morning. Here's the first one. The resurrection means that there is life after this life. We've got to be clear on this. There is a life that's coming, a life after this life. Verse 20, Christ has been raised, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which means there's a coming harvest. And if you get the idea of the first fruits, you get what he's saying. There's more to come. But he elaborates on this. Sets this parallel in 21 and 22. Two men, Christ, who, who is fully man as well as fully God, and Adam. They're, they're set in parallel to each other here. And they bring two different things. One brings death, one brings resurrection of the dead. Or to change it slightly, he says, 22, in Adam all die. Those who are part of Adam, those included in the realm of Adam, think think of being in a circle. Those in Adam die, which is all of us. And it's in the present tense, which tells us he means right this day. He's not talking about a theoretical thing that happened in the past, like we died in sin or something like that. He means we die. Hundreds of us, thousands, tens of thousands of us today die. And tomorrow, die. And the day after. In a hundred years, every single one of us will be dead. All of this is a gift to us from our father Adam. When he thought it was wise to turn away from the good God of life, he died and all of us with him received a gift from him. A ticking clock. And now we live with this constant witness to the fallenness of humanity. All of the aches and the pains and the sufferings and the diseases and the disorders that finally lead to death are a witness to us 
something is wrong. For all of us, you're conceived dying, born dying. You grow up dying and then you die. We are, we, we are so strong and, and secure and capable in so many ways, but we are in fact just like sandcastles built on a beach. Some built at low tide are going to be gone in an hour, and some built further up will last a little longer until the sun scorches them, they dry out, and the wind blows them away. The materials and the environment, sand on a beach, make it impossible for it to last. The materials in the environment make it impossible for us to last. This should rest on us and make us mourn. Think of how all of our existence now is shaped by the reality of death. We grow up in a conscious, sometimes subconscious, acknowledgement of a life cycle. There's a cycle. We should step back and say, made in the image of the eternal good God of life. Something has happened that I go through a cycle? What's wrong with that? But we all do. Every bit of our life, we get educated for a little while, we work for a little while, our muscles begin to fade, disease sets in and we then die. Men and women... Something inside of you should say, wrong. It's wrong. And it's more real than anything. What's wrong with that? Something must be terrible about sin if sin could cause something so terrible as death, as the ending of an image bearer. Something is wrong there. And it is universal and it is coming. Thank you very much, Adam. But it's not Adam's fault only. It's come to you through him. But our own sin, all by ourselves, would lead us to the same place. A God who is life and a God who is holy looks at image bearers who say, Thank you, I will live apart from you. And he says, No, you will not. No, will not. And that's the end. We have no recourse except that by the grace of God, He Himself, the, the offended judge, remarkably intervened and said, I'm going to change all of that reality. In Adam all die, and in Christ, all who are in Christ will live forever and ever and ever. And it is not, get this, it is not just that he will hit rewind and take us back to birth and then we'll live this life again. 
It's totally different. The first fruits, you don't look at a peach in your hand and say, man, there are more apples coming. You look at a peach and say, there are more peaches coming. Like this one. Christ, the first fruit, says that when we are raised, we will be like him. How so? If you ask that question, then you're thinking along with the passage because he's going to come to the resurrection body in the following verses. But we will be like him. We will live a different existence, not this one. Can you imagine a life that is not completely structured around the life cycle? Because there won't be a life cycle. Death won't be coming anymore. He's going to change it all for those who are in Christ. As surely as we look and say, people in Adam die, and they surely do. And as surely as we look and say, Christ was raised, and he surely was. So we are to say, those in Christ will follow with him into a new and glorious life. Christian, do you realize this? I, pro- I think probably I have not said anything that you don't know, but do you know it? Because when we get down to the end, we're going to say you have no knowledge of God. Uh, he's talking to a church. Of course they have knowledge of God. But he says, no, you don't. So do you know this? Of course we know this. Do you? Does this hold you that this life is not all there is? There is another one more coming different and glorious. And when you look at the aching, decaying, declining of life, when you look at the grave, when you think of a loved one died in Christ, do you realize he, she lives and will live marvelously forever? There is... This, this, this matters in the misery. Something different and new coming to those who are in Christ. So I I have to be really careful with that and ask you, are you in Christ? Because we have all in Adam die, all in Christ live, but there is a whole bunch of people in the middle who are still in Adam but are not in Christ. What does that phrasing mean? To be in Christ means to be just like to be included in Adam. Think of a circle. Be included in Jesus. How, how do I get into be included in Jesus? And the short answer is, the short answer is, you don't do anything. You trust what he did. You trust what he did dying on the cross to Pay for sin. You say, I cannot deal with my sin problem. Only you can. Will you please receive me into Christ and apply His cross payment to my sin debt? You trust what He has done. Is that you? Are you still outside understanding this now? And if so, come in Come into Christ. There is a life that is coming after this life. The resurrection tells us that. 
And if we ask, as the psalmists often do, how long, O Lord, how long? His answer is, not quite yet, because I'm not done with what I'm doing right now. That takes us to the second point. He's doing something. And the second observation is going to connect to that. Here's the second point. And really, I say it second because it's second in the flow of the passage, but it is of first importance. This really should be primary. It's of first importance. And this subject, it's in first importance in the world. So here's the point. The resurrection means that God will again be supreme in all things. The resurrection means that God will again be supreme in all things. And I use that language because it connects to our purpose statement printed on the bottom of the front of your bulletin, which we stole from somewhere else. I'm original with this. But you'll see the language there, and maybe you can track along with what I'm saying and see it in this passage. The resurrection is about the supremacy of God in all things. Start in verse 24. Something going on, is going on now, even as we speak. Christ is up to something. He's been raised, and, and the grammar of the passage, as well as a whole bunch of other places in the Bible, tell us what's going on. He's been raised, and he is currently reigning. Seated, reigning as a king. And he is about something in that reign. He is working, as 25 and following says, to put all his enemies under his feet. He's grabbing things and putting them under his feet. Grabbing things, putting them under. That's the, the work of this reigning king. The Old Testament said he would do that. Psalm 2, we looked at it a few months back, perhaps you recall, said that this is the work going on now of God extending the reign of his king's son into all of the nations. That's going on even as we stand here and speak. Listen, it's happening in this room, it's happening in all the nations. He's spreading his kingdom to every corner of the world, over every rebel power, over every human system, over every everything, over all. Christ's kingdom is total in its scope. It's spreading, but it's not yet complete, which is why we're still here. He's carrying on with this work. It will be finished one day when he has destroyed everything, including finally death, and he sheaths his sword, and then he, Christ the King, bows his knee to God the Father. That's what we are in the midst of right now. Even as we sit here, it doesn't look like it, but that's what's going on in the world. End of verse 28. The Son will also then be subjected to the Father that, it says, notice this, that, so that God may be all in all. The so that, that's a statement about purpose, reason. Why is this? Why is all of this going on in the creation? What is the Son doing? Why is He doing this? We've got to think about this. Because we so often think, and this is one of those things that I, 
where you see a, a half-truth presented as the whole truth is an untruth. We so often get half of the truth here, and we think that God the Father sent God the Son to the earth to save me. Did He? <laughs> Gloriously, absolutely, yes. But that's half the truth, and if that's the whole truth in your mind, it's not true. What this passage is telling us is that God the Father said to God the Son, and and let's be careful about how the Trinity works. This is deep water, I know, but I try to be brief about this. I've said before, in the Trinity we have God the Father, Son, and Spirit, all equally God, of equal value. That We don't have junior God in the Trinity. God. One God in three persons, each of whom is fully God, and yet, however, they have different roles. In relation to the creation, God the Father, you can hear it in the word Father, has authority. And God the Son, like the perfect human, is submissive to the Father's authority. And God the Father said to God the Son, go down, take on a body, and fix it all, and bring it back corrected. Part of that includes saving you. But that's not the end goal. And if you think like that, the reason it becomes an untruth is that it becomes a very man-centered, woman-centered way of looking at the world. God exists to save me. No. God exists that God may be all in all. Which gloriously includes you. This whole world is supremely about God. Which is why I said this point is of prime importance really in the whole Bible. That God may be all in all. Let's take that apart very briefly to understand that. Sounds like a Bible phrase, but what does it mean? Well, if you just think about it, that in all things... God may be all. Say it again a little differently. That in everything, God may be everything. That in every nook and cranny, in every moment, in every continent, in every nation, in every living room, God may be preeminent, supreme, the beginning and the end. Everything, all, everywhere, in all places. Which if you think for a second about it, is completely appropriate. He's God. Nothing else is. No one else is. He alone is God. He should be all, everywhere, in everything. We need to think about this. All of existence is about God And about Him being supreme over everything you can imagine. And if He was evil, we would be in trouble. Thankfully, He is not. But do you realize the utter helplessness we would face when confronted with God? Not the domesticated God of our imaginations. God, who said, be, and all of this was. How could we stand against him? 
He is to be all in all. Which includes the inner workings of your own heart. Which explains what he's doing at the cross to become all in you. And it also explains all of these phrases about him grabbing everything piece by piece throughout all the creation and putting it under his feet and putting it under his feet as the king exerts his reign and then wraps it all up in a package, ties it in a bow and says, My father, mission accomplished. Here it is. All of the enemies have been subjected or destroyed. The rebellion is finished. And the creation made new. What a glorious day that will be. And this, if we would get this, there would be a radical hope and a radical reorientation that would grow in you. The hope because... Hope because He is not evil, but He is good. And He made us in His image. And the thing inside of us that is always searching and always longing and always lacking finds its home when He is all in it. The supremacy of God over all things is for your joy. If you will embrace Him. For your misery if you will not but for your joy if you will embrace Him because He is the definition of good and the definition of love, the definition of life. Have Him as your all and live. There should be a great hope in this if you think about this is what Christ is doing right now. He is recentering all of the creation on God. That's the work He's begun in my life. I can begin to know that joy now and I will know it forever because that's what makes the coming life, life. God all in all. There should be a great hope there. You can know Him by God's initiative. And there should be a reorientation there because what's wrong with this world and what's wrong with me even as a Christian, what's wrong with me is that do we not live God, some in some? Is that not your life? God, a decent amount in several places, when I can find it convenient. Do you see, I hope you see, that that is not only evil, it is sad. It is the epitome of cutting off your nose to spite your face. God, some in some. This God, some in some. Oh, 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 oh. Look at your life and look at the world and look at the fruit born from God, some in some. And look back at the hope that God will be one day all in all. The tomb is empty. Christ reigns and is coming. This is the work He's about. 
which means that there is full, full joy coming to us and joy available to you right now if you'll know Him. And that leads me to the final point. The resurrection means that we should live now with our eyes on the future. We should live now with our eyes on the future. And I draw this out of 29 through the end. Where he has these two examples of people who are doing something now with their eyes on the future. That's the point he's trying to make to us. And he is actually explicit in 32. It is not the case. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Perhaps to rephrase it in Paul's words, let us eat and drink with God to His glory for tomorrow we live. Do you understand this? This isn't all there is. There is life coming. And He is pressing this on them and then He pulls out the little... Do not go on sinning. Wake up. From what? Well, he uses this phrasing of drunken stupor. What he means is you're not thinking straight. You're thinking like someone who is under the influence. You are. You're under the influence of bad company, corrupting your character, deceiving you, and leading you astray to say, this is all there is. Grab it while you can. And grab it quick before he does. This isn't all there is. And that's not where life... Wake up! Do you get this? Don't go on sinning. Well, how, do they, how do you not go on sinning? Well, I pointed this out last week, so this is the redundant part. What's right before? Look at 34. What's right before the do not go on sinning command? Well, wake up and think straight, and then right after it, for some have no knowledge of God. What's the thinking straight? Think with the knowledge of God. Like what? Like this that we've just been talking about. And if this knowledge of God will grab you, it will open your eyes to the fact this is a deception. This is not life. Life with Him. Life if God would be all in me. That would be life. That's the truth. Wake up to that and you won't chase life in a whole bunch of other places. So lift up your eyes, brothers and sisters. Do you see this God who is putting all things under His reign and will come back one day and finish it all and can be known by you even right now? It's kind of the, the theoretical piece that I mentioned last week, but let me, let me try to make it a little bit different and suggest this. This is something that I've done this last couple days as I've been thinking about this. I'm just asking myself, when I notice the drift in my heart, when I notice, by the grace of God, when I notice, I'm following a little bit of a deception here. I'm thinking that this, oh, am I really thinking that this is, okay, I'm attracted to this, is that right? When I notice that, I'm just saying, is God all in all or some in some? That's a little phrase that I've started to use a little bit in my mind. All in all or some in some. And what I mean by that, to expand it a little bit, 
I'm asking, am I thinking right now and therefore acting as if there is more in this other passing temporary pleasure or offer than there is in God? He's some over here, but this is more. Am I thinking and acting as if I will be more secure, more satisfied, happier, less fearful, more content, whatever, if I pursue this course, if, if I... If I lash out and get my way with this person, if I, if I justify myself in this one's eyes, if I attain a little bit more money, is that where my life is going to be found? Thinking that God is present there, some, but not all. That, that's what I mean by that. But I've just started asking, all in all are some and some. So, my question for you then at the end, Which one is it? Ask yourself, and maybe as we sing here in closing, ask yourself, maybe God would give you grace and alert you to an area where you're wandering, where you're being drawn. Ask yourself, all in all, or some in some, which is he? Let me pray. Father, you are the God who is, who is to be all in everything. And that for our joy, praise your name. And yet we fall far short of that. Forgive us. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here, and I ask you, along with myself, would you do a gracious work in the lives of your people to show us where we live as if we have no knowledge of you, where we live very familiar with the world, distantly acquainted with you. Make that apparent in our lives and bring appropriate conviction and correction. Would you commission your spirit, Father, to work in our hearts and grow our subjection to Christ the King for our good, for His, and ultimately for your glory. And for those of us here, Lord, who don't know you, Open their eyes. Give sight to the futility of living for this life. Alert them to the life that is coming, to those who are in Christ, but not to those who are not. Give them taste and desire. Give them life, I pray. It's up to you, your God. We submit to you in all of these things. I pray, Lord, that you'd build your church, that you, would become most, that you would become most important to us. We need you, and apart from you, we can do nothing. We believe that. Help our unbelief become all in us, I pray. For our good and for your great honor, I pray it. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121. 